0: is concern for the well-being of others one of the rest one of the root cause of restlessness is concern for the well-being of others this could be a friend a husband a wife child a family member those who are going through hardship or trial when someone we love experiences pain isn't it true that we also experience pain to some degree And this is magnified especially if we're not able to be with that person. We're not able to see them on a regular basis. Now, in our day and age, we have lots of ways to communicate long distance. But it hasn't always been that way. And even so, there's a huge difference between standing beside someone in their trial and affliction and and being able to simply call them. And examples of these would be a family member in another state who's battling cancer. Missionaries in a foreign country who are undergoing persecution. These events make us restless and anxious. And if this is true of the physical, how much more the spiritual? How much restlessness is caused by unconverted family members? Trials that are going on in in our friends and our family's life that are just hard to answer. And this is very common to all of us. What kind of things make you restless? What kind of things cause your heart to stir within you and cry out to God asking that He would intercede, that He would move on the behalf? Restlessness can cause great ache, but what happens when you receive the news that those fears have been alleviated? You know, we think of one hand where we're restless for, for, the, for something, for an unconverted family member or, or something that's causing someone pain. But then how much joy do we feel when we hear the news that that which was causing problems is gone? The cancer has been, has been eliminated or is, is being completely erased. That family member that we've been praying for for years, if not decades, has begun to show signs of love for the word of God and love for Christ. The trial and hardships that ha- that have been plaguing family members have begun to subside and God is moving in their lives causing great causing joy on our behalf. Well this is this is what Paul is getting at this evening. As we as we as we come to a close Of chapter 3 and really the first half of this book, Paul is speaking of the restlessness that he has encountered on behalf of the Thessalonians, the restlessness that he has felt because of their trial and persecution and his distance from them. And now at the return of Timothy, those fears have been eliminated and actually been replaced. With greater encouragement on Paul's part, with joy, and as we'll see later on in verses nine and ten, an eruption into praise and thanksgiving. This is the same feeling of joy that Paul is experiencing when his restless fear—excuse feel, me, his fears—are subsided. Now, the context, just to back up a bit. This section is really interesting because here Paul weaves together. He's bringing chapter 3 to a close. And so he's weaving together all these dominant themes that he's been talking about to the Thessalonians. In verse 6 he talks about faith and love, kind of bringing through what he had been talking about in in chapter 1, talking about their faith, their love, and their hope. In verse 7 Paul talks about the persecution and affliction that he's enduring, and he's echoing the same persecution that they are going through in chapter 2. Again, in verse 6, he talks about his longing for, their longing for him echoing their long, his longing for them in chapter 2. And I think as Paul draws this to a close, he's, he's really giving us a, a snippet of what the church, how the church looks and how it operates, what a healthy church looks like, what characterizes a true church, and secondly, how members of that church live together with one another. So I think what Paul is teaching us this evening, that is no less true today as it was 2,000 years ago, is that as we rely upon each other, as we rely upon our brothers and sisters in faith, Christian faith encourages and strengthens fellow believers. It rejoices in perseverance and results in thanksgiving and praise to God. That Christian faith, your Christian faith believer, encourages and strengthens your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, rejoices in perseverance, and results in thanksgiving and praise to God. And I would like to look at this in three sections. Verse 6, faith that encourages and strengthens. Verses 7 and 8, faith that rejoices in perseverance. And thirdly, Verses 9 and 10, faith that leads to thanksgiving, praise, and continued work to the glory of God. So if you'd look look with me at verse 6. Again, real quick. But now that Timothy has come to us from you, and has brought us good news of your faith and love, and that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us just as we long to see you, Paul opens this section, really describing the motive of his letter. That, at Timothy's return, he quickly sat down to pen this letter to the Thessalonians. Up until this point, he's been reminding them. But Paul uses this this language, but, but now, as in the present, but now that Timothy has come, that Timothy's returned and brought this good news. Now, what is this good news that he's given? Three things. First, their faith in God. Second, their love for one another. And thirdly, their affections toward Paul, Silvanus, and the rest of the missionaries who were with them. Paul uses this word, good news. Now this word, good news, here, is the same word that he uses elsewhere for proclaiming the gospel, for preaching the good news. And here, this is the only place Paul uses it in a different context. Paul uses this word, good news, for the report that Timothy is given kind of giving the impression that, that Paul is not, Paul not only rejoices in the fact that, that men and women come to faith in Christ, but that they are persevering in that faith. I think oftentimes we get caught up in, in thinking of, of conversions as the pinnacle of things, and, and I'm not at all backing down on the glory of when a sinner repents. But at the same time, Paul here is laying before us how joyous of an occasion it is to hear that the faith and the love of those who have been converted is standing fast and strong. He, he gives thanks, or he, he's, he's excited about this. He's saying this good news of their faith in God. Kind of looking back to chapter 1, verse 9, when he said that they turn from idols to serve the living and the true God. That they have not. Their faith in God indicates that they haven't gone back to those idols. That even in the midst of persecution and affliction persecution and trial that drove Paul out of Thessalonica, that even in the midst of those circumstances, these Thessalonian believers have, their faith is still intact. They're still looking to Christ for salvation. But not only their faith, but also their love. Not only love to God, but love to one another. Paul, is, Paul exclaims this earlier, I think it's in chapter 1 where he's exhorting them to, to bear with one another. He's exhorting them to, to live with one another in an understanding way, to bear one another's burdens and to rejoice with one another. Thirdly, he rejoices that they have affections for him, that they long to see him, that they think kindly of them. They long to see them just as Paul had longed to see the Thessalonians. Now, this, repen- this remembrance of Paul by the Thessalonians really serves to, to underscore that the attacks of the devil, the attacks of, of the Judaizers or whoever was, who was seeking to undermine the Thessalonians and to undercut Paul's reputation, those attacks have failed. Paul had spent almost all of chapter 2 kind of defending himself, defending his motives, his mannerisms, defending how he, he, was about, he, he, he held himself... Among the Thessalonians. But here, Paul, Timothy's report indicates that all those attacks fell to nothing. Because the Thessalonians still think kindly of Paul. They don't, think, they don't think ill of him. Paul speaks that their faith has encouraged and strengthened him. That their faith in God, their love for one another, their affectionate remembrance of Paul, their longing to see him, indicate that they're walking with the Lord, they're standing fast, and that Paul rejoices in this and he draws strength from this. He draws strength from the faith of other believers. And it's the same thing today as it was in Paul's day. That the church is built to do so. The church is built to draw upon one another. We, we draw encouragement from one another as we, as we see one another walking through trials in life. but yet we do not renounce the faith. As hard as things may get, we, st- we hold fast to Christ. And on the flip side, on the flip side, this, this propels us forward to look at each other as models of faith, to, Paul says elsewhere, to imitate him, imitate those who are walking strong in the faith. So I think this lays before us two things of application in this first section. First, how often do you think that your faith is an encouragement to others? How often do we think in those terms? Because unfortunately in our, in our 21st century American context, we're very individualized. We often just have our, we have blinders on in a sense. But I think we need to take a cue from Paul here in knowing that, that we do not walk alone, that we are to draw strength from one another. And on the flip side, do we view, do we view our walk as, as necessary to others to draw encouragement from? Now, it, it might be, it's, it's easier in a sense to think of it with parents and, 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 and children. We want to set a good example for our children. But how much more do we need to still do that within the context of the local church? That those who've been walking with the Lord 20, 30, 40 years are a model to look to and to emulate. And there's a great weight of responsibility that comes along with that. Well, Paul not only looks at their faith and draws strength from it, but he rejoices in their Perseverance. If you look in the verses 7 and 8, Paul speaking in a causal way as as of their faith for this reason, or because of your faith, brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith. For now we really live, if you stand firm in the Lord. Paul elsewhere had spoken of himself and his view that he looked at himself as the spiritual parent of the Thessalonians. He looked at them not only because he was the first to bring the gospel to them, but also that he was more mature in the faith. And so he was, he was drawing comfort. And I think it's interesting too, in verse 7, he says that, For in our distress and affliction we were comforted. He's not talking about the, the stress and affliction of the Thessalonians, even though they're in the midst of stress and persecution. But Paul, now away from them, The report of their faith and of their love for Him and their love for God is something that empowers Him even at a distance. That even even though He is separated, He nevertheless is encouraged by their perseverance. He's rejoicing in their perseverance. That they're standing steadfast in the Lord even under trial. And in verse 8 He says this, For now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. Paul not only draws strength from their faith, but he, he indicates that he looks at his life and the Thessalonians' life as, as intricately intertwined. One, one version translates verse eight, 8 as this It is life to us if you stand fast in the Lord. It is life to us if you stand fast in the Lord. Paul rejoices in them, and he's saying nothing less than what the Apostle John says in 3 John chapter, verse 4, when he says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. So Paul is indicating that he's, he's saying I ha- that, that the, he had this deadness about him while he was worried, that the restlessness he felt inside of himself kind of gave this, maybe not a depression, but this sense of This sense of unalleviated anxiety. But at hearing that their faith is strong, at hearing that they are persevering in trial, He Himself is invigorated. He Himself is is spurned on to greater work. He talks about His steadfastness in the faith because they are steadfast in the faith. He expresses His great relief at their good news and His rejoicing that they, they are steadfast. He expresses that it is as if he was dead for, from anxiety for them. But now that he knows their well-being, he is alleviated. Paul, Paul has this, this integral connection with his churches. In 2 Corinthians 11, he says he has anxiety for all of his churches. So this is nothing new in Paul. But it shows a glimpse of the man's heart. It shows us a picture into just how much Paul cared for these people. He was not just just concerned in planting churches and moving on. He was not just concerned with conversions. He was concerned with maturity. He was concerned with well-being. He was concerned with, with this new body of believers that he was leaving behind, bearing a great name for Christ in his absence. Paul sees himself as intricately intertwined with his with his people. And Paul does something interesting again in verse 8. He, it seems as though this is the conditional clause in verse 8 where it says, if you stand firm in the faith. It, it, it seems at first glance that Paul might be going back on something he had already he had said, if questioning their faith, but he, does, he doesn't use the conditional clause to call into question the reality of the news of their steadfastness, but rather he emphasizes it. And at the same time, it compla- contains an implicit admonition to continue to stand steadfast and not be moved. That Paul's using this and saying, look, we are in this together. I'm drawing strength from you, and you draw strength from me. And as long as you stand steadfast, it encourages me to stand steadfast in the faith. Because, I, because we are recognizing that God is at work. That we are held in the palm of God's hand. And that he, and he is sovereignly guiding us and upholding us in all of our trials and afflictions. Paul rejoices in the perseverance of these Thessalonian believers. And we see the same thing in Jesus. Think about Peter's confession, right? The different... in the, in the, in the Gospels. When Jesus asks His, asks his disciples... Who did the people say that I am? And after some discussion, he asks them, and Peter says, You are the Christ, the Son of God. And what does what Peter do? Or, excuse me, what does Jesus do? He erupts in thanksgiving and joy at seeing Peter's faith, because his faith did not come from flesh and blood, but his faith was revealed from God. Jesus rejoiced in the faith of his followers. Paul rejoiced in the faith and the perseverance of the churches that he planted. And so you, to, you and I are called to that same rejoicing of one another's faith. As our, as our faith encourages one another, and as, we, and as we admonish and encourage one another in our pilgrimage, do you, do you take great joy in seeing one another overcome hardship? Do you take joy in in seeing God preserve the faith of His saints? We certainly think about this in the context of missionaries, when we hear hear from foreign fields that that even in the midst of much persecution and trial, missionaries are standing fast, that the church is still strong. But even that, that same principle applies to us. And that just as Paul rejoiced in the faith of the Thessalonians, We, too, should rejoice in one another's faith and encourage one another. Paul was encouraged by their faith. He rejoiced in their faith. But thirdly, it led to thanksgiving and to praise. Their faith faith and joy led to thanksgiving and praise to God. If you look at me at verses 9 and 10, Paul asks this rhetorical question, For what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before our God on your account? As we... And then I think he gives an answer to this in some sense. As we night and day keep praying most earnestly... There's prayer. ...that we may see you face to face and may complete what is lacking in your faith. Paul... Paul ends. He closes out this section, much like the psalmist in one sixteen, by saying, "What? Can, how much can? Is there anything that we can actually give to God, for all the joy that we feel on behalf of others, the joy that we feel from knowing Christ and savoring Christ, and knowing that our brothers and sisters are walking fast in the faith and standing firm in the Lord?" This rhetorical question. Matthew Henry says this, When we are most cheerful, we should be most thankful. That Paul does not, he does not conclude by saying, I have much joy in you, and then move on. But instead, as, and then later on in the next section, he, he goes to pray for them. Instead, their faith and the joy that he feels from them erupts into thanksgiving and praise to God. Because Paul acknowledges, That's when he says, before our God, he's using this phrase in the the way of acknowledging the fact that everything comes from God. That every good and precious gift comes down from God and that apart from Him, there is no advancement. There is no spiritual advancement. That these Thessalonians believers are being held in the palm of God's hand. That their faith is being upheld by Him. And Paul is having the great joy of of being a part of that with them. Well, in verse 10, I think that Paul gives somewhat of his response. Even though he says, what can we say? How much, we cannot give enough thanksgiving to God. But then he turns and in light of Romans 12, living as a, giving our lives as a living sacrifice to God. I think Paul gives three things that he, that he tries to do for the, for the Thessalonians in response and to give thanks and praise to God. First, he says that he prays night and day, so we have prayer. Second, he desires to see them face to face, fellowship. And third, to desire what, to supply what is lacking in their faith. So, continued teaching. Again, Paul does not sit idly by and simply praise God, but what does he do? His praise and thanksgiving to God lead to action. He doesn't sit idly by, but, but his thanksgiving and his praise to God lead to action. In verse 10 he says, We, night and day, keep praying most earnestly. Again, he's echoing what he said earlier in chapter 1, that, he, that not that praying night and day was literally 24-7, but it was a lifestyle of prayer, a lifestyle of prayer for the needs of other believers, and in Paul's case, the Thessalonians. He prays not only for their present situation, but that he might return to them, that he might see them face to face. A couple weeks ago, we, we looked at Paul's talking about the fellowship of believers, the communion of the saints, and how even Paul, an apostle of Christ, desired to be face to face with believers, to have their faith encourage one another, to use one another's spiritual giftings to build one another up and to propel them forward to continual work. He desires, he prays for them, he desires to see them face to face in order that he might supply what is lacking in their faith. Now, when he says lacking in their faith, I think we need, in light of the context, in light of how long Paul was there, he was only there for maybe three or four weeks, I don't think Paul here is indicting the Thessalonians. But he's saying that, and let's, let's be honest, how, mu- how much teaching can go on in three to four weeks? I mean, Paul comes and you have this, you have this conversion and you have this newborn church, and three to four weeks is not a lot of time to teach. And so Paul is using this term lacking as, as, as to restore, to complete. To complete the work that he started in first bringing them the gospel. Elsewhere, this word to supply or restore is used of, of fixing nets. So it, has this, it carries this idea of making whole, bringing to completion. Paul is not blaming them, but he's encouraging them. He's encouraging them to continue to grow and to mature in their faith. Paul shows his love for the Thessalonians in his, that their faith encourages his faith, that he rejoices in their perseverance of faith, and that their faith has led him to thanksgiving and praise to God and continual work of prayer, of desiring to see them, of fellowship and of desire to continue to teach them that they may be mature and whole Christians. And I think this comes... Paul is really giving us a glimpse of a picture of the church. A picture of how the church is to operate. A picture of of how believers believers interact with one another. That as as Christian men, women and children, we we must always be seeking the good of others. We must be seeking one another's good. ...and be ready to assist in any way possible. That we must be humble in our walk. That we must be humble to, as, as, we, as we travel along in our pilgrimage to heaven... ...that we must be humble to receive correction where we are lacking. That just as Paul sought to correct what was lacking the Thessalonians... ...all of us in this room have places in our faith that are lacking. And that God has gr- gloriously put the church together... ...so that we might encourage one another... And that we might rejoice together. That we might exhort one another and fill in those gaps of our faith. Looking to one another for encouragement. So as Paul gives us this picture of the church. Do these things, can can we honestly say, can you honestly say this evening. That these things are a reality in your life. To draw on the faith of others, to be mutually encouraged, to strengthen one another. Is that something that's on our minds day in and day out? Not only to strengthen one another, but to rejoice with one another, to rejoice with those who rejoice, to weep with those who weep, to bear one another's burdens. And lastly, that all of it leads to thanksgiving and praise to God and continual work. For one another and for the advancement of the kingdom? Does our joy in Christ, does our joy in one another lead to thanksgiving and praise? As I was as I was studying this week, that was one thing that convicted me is how often do we pray and we ask God for many things, and then we are graciously given those things, but how quickly, how quickly do we give return thanks to God for them? Or is it days or weeks later that we remember that God did answer that prayer that we prayed? Does your joy result in thanksgiving and praise to God? And as Paul gives us this great, this, this great picture of the church, this encouragement of his interaction with fellow believers and saints, that as Paul prayed for one another, we have this great reminder... That just as Jesus rejoiced in the faith of Peter, Jesus rejoices in our faith, even now, but also that He sits at the throne of heaven, interceding on our behalf. Do we, do we ponder and think about those things that, that, that as we seek that we are really seeking to emulate Christ in all that we do in all of our interactions with one another, that we seek to emulate His, his, his sacrifice for us? in in leaving the glory of heaven to come and and take on human flesh? Do we think and and rejoice in the sacrifice of Him going to the cross for us and bearing upon Himself the wrath of God for our sin? Do we rejoice and do do we walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called? Seeking to do for one another in the church what has been done for us. Paul gives us this great reminder and and I think it's especially pertinent for a church like us because we're smaller and there has those advantages that we might know one another. That we can walk alongside one another very intertwined with each other's lives because we can get to know one another. We 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 can know one another's trials and hardships. We can share with one another. We can testify of God's goodness in our lives and do we take advantage of that? Because I do believe that that's how God designed His church to operate. That the faith of each other would encourage. That we would rejoice together. And that we would give all to the praise of glory and thanksgiving to God for what He's done. Let us pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank You. Lord, we thank You for the church. We thank you for the example that Paul gives to us in this letter to the Thessalonians. Lord, that you have not ordained us to walk alone, but Lord, you have united us together by our union with Christ, by the power of the Spirit, and that you have equipped us to walk together, to encourage one another, to exhort one another, to rejoice with one another, to give praise and honor to you together. Father, we pray that as we go into this week that we would be ever mindful and intent on, on living a life that encourages our fellow believers, that encourages our brothers and sisters. Father, we pray that and we dedicate ourselves to you in the sense that you would use us to the glory of Christ. Father, we pray that, that you would do this for us. Lord, and now as we take up this dedicatory offering, we pray that you would use it as well to advance your kingdom. Father, we pray that you would be honored and glorified in every facet of our lives. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit antiochpca.com.